Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato alahato sammasambuddhasa Buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami as you all know, I've just come back from Sydney, so pretty tired. Uh, but I was telling to Ajahn Bamali that I think that I've given so many Dharma talks, I can give a Dharma talk when I'm on my deathbed, really dying and gasping for breath. I managed to get a Dharma talk out somewhere. It's just my nature. But I know that if uh, ever I do feel a bit tired, sickly or whatever. It's the way I've been meditating for such a long time, the way I've been practicing the Dharma for such a long time. It's not really much of a problem, simply because that uh, when it comes to aspirations, which people often ask me, sort of should we make aspirations? You know, should we you know, have something we're aiming for in meditation? And you know, when we talk about the Idipadas, I mean, what do they really mean? I mean, what, where is one actually going? And sometimes you reflect on uh, all these things we're aiming for, and you aim to be a stream winner, you aim to get jhanas, but it makes no sense to me aiming for something which you don't really know what it is. Because when you don't know where it is, you don't know where it lies, you don't know what direction you should go into. And it's only afterwards, when you get some of those attainments or those experiences, rather, only then you know what the path is. So it is an important thing to know that you know, during this retreat, the rest of this retreat, please, please, please do not aim for nimittas. Don't sort of aim for jhanas. Don't try and become a stream winner because you're missing the point completely and you'll just waste too much valuable time. And there's sometimes that, yeah, it is okay to have a goal, but make it the right goal. As I always keep on saying, the course is not the results. That's what one should be aiming for, to put the causes. <clears throat> so when I meditate, I just aspire to be peaceful. And you know, just that changes a whole attitude to one's meditation. You just, uh, your goal is stillness. And so, what actually happens there? If that's my goal, so that's my aspiration. You know, if I, my goal is peace, my aspiration is stillness. What happens is like, if my goal is peace, I just start to pacify all the goals. And that's how peace arises. If I want to be still, I have to still all the wanting. And so, yeah, it is a goal. Yeah, it is an aspiration. But it's a thing which turns off the machine rather than uh, cranking it up and getting it going faster and faster and faster. And that's something which makes it so easy for me because if I'm tired, if I'm busy, if I'm healthy, if I'm sick, you know, sometimes the focusing, concentration, putting forth you know, the mental effort and physical effort, sometimes it's very difficult. It's sometimes very difficult to read, you know, if you're really tired. It's sometimes really difficult to sweep the path when you're exhausted. 
Now anything which takes physical or mental effort becomes difficult when you're sick. But the wonderful thing is that that is not the path. So even if you're sick and worn out and exhausted, you can still make peace. You can pacify the mind. You can still everything. And you will not be able to do that if it took effort. And that's why there's all those stories I've been sharing with everybody. If you're really tired, exhausted, and I was telling last night in what uh, Santi Forest Monastery, just you know, just having scrub typhus, you know, that story where you were so weak you couldn't stand up, literally not stand up, without grabbing onto the the rails of the iron bedstead you know, in the monk's ward in Ubon Hospital and just steadying yourself before you literally you lurched. You sort of allowed yourself to fall towards the next bedstead and grab onto that and steady yourself again. I mean, that's no exaggeration. There's just hardly any energy at all because you had fever for, for three or four weeks, I think. And you can imagine just trying to focus, if you want to say, I'm going to focus on my breath, I'm not going to let it go, I'm just going to really go for it this time, you just physically can't do that. It's impossible. But fortunately that I've had some good teachers over my time as a monk, and they sort of taught me how to do these things. Please don't try. There's that story about the Wat Ba Pong being the mango orchard. If you want the mango to fall, don't climb the tree, don't throw sticks at it, don't shake it, just sit underneath it, open up your hand and the mango falls. That's so brilliant. <coughs> you know, the, the uh, other simile of his, just the, the leaf only moves because of the wind. Just stop the wind, or st actually you make the wind anyway, just still that wind. Stop blowing on things, stop wanting and controlling and everything becomes still. What that means is you can meditate at any time. When you're tired, when you're on the aircraft, when you're old, when you're sick. That's brilliant. Sort of, it's such a great relief to me to know that it doesn't matter about my physical health. It doesn't matter about whether I'm tired or what I'm, my body is doing. Even when it gets very, very old, I can still do those things. So you don't need to be an Olympic athlete. You don't need to be strong and fit and young to be able to meditate and attain things and get these incredible experiences. So that is a huge relief. I don't need to try. I just need to pacify these things. But of course, to be able to do that, you have to have enough mindfulness. There's a bit of a, a vicious circle here that if you're not mindful, it means you can't really see what you're doing. So you don't know how to pacify things. You just, basically, you don't know what you're doing. And when you don't know what you're doing, you can't have that stillness, which increases the mindfulness, which is one of the great difficulties of this meditation practice, that sometimes I teach people to be still, to pacify things, just to be open the door of your heart. And they think they're doing it, but they're not, because they're, Mindfulness is not clear. It's like this room, which is now dark. You, know, you can't see things very clearly because the, the lights are down. When mindfulness increases, it's just like the lights are all turned up. You can see your way. You, know, <coughs> you don't trip over things. 
So, you know, that simile of mindfulness, to be able to really stop doing things and let go, you need a really strong degree of mindfulness. That's a difficulty. You can't get that strength of mindfulness without letting go. You can't let go without being mindful. That's a great difficulty in, in this meditation path. But once you get going, once you start this process, you have enough mindfulness to see what we're talking about, and you can let go enough to create that stronger mindfulness, and the whole thing sort of takes off. And you really get into this uh, meditation, and, and you realize that it's such an easy thing to do, to go against the stream of craving, because literally you're just doing nothing. You're relaxing, creating ease, creating peace, when you create ease, you create peace. It means that just what we chanted now, you know, apiyehi, sampa yogo dukho, to be together, to be linked to that which you don't like is dukkha. And piyehi, whippa yogo dukho, you know, to be separated from what you do want is dukkha. You can see when you want something, it's always dukkha, or you want to get rid of something which you have. That's the suffering, that's the dukkha. So every time you aspire for something, you're creating in, no, dukkha right in this moment. Because as soon as you want something, you're separated from what you want, and you're not happy where you are. You want to get to somewhere else. You've got a goal to reach. You've got a plane to, to catch. You've got something to do. And that stops you being peaceful. So it's, the Buddha kept on saying this so often that uh, if we could only just look at the simple, basic teachings of the Buddha, there's enough information there on meditation practice, let alone insight and dhamma, to take you all the way. You know, just hang on. If I'm at this particular stage of my meditation, if I'm really tired, if I'm restless, and I don't want to be restless, that is... Apiyehi sampa yoga dukkha, associating with the disliked. That's where the suffering comes from. You know, or if you, uh, you know, you want to get somewhere and you haven't got there yet, and that's suffering, separation from the light, from the goal. And how can you end dukkha by creating dukkha? So by that wanting, by that striving and struggling for these things these states, that's where you're creating suffering, you're not ending it. And when you create that suffering, you are actually borrowing energy, which means you get tired. I was saying that uh, to uh, people over in Santi, because you know, there's sometimes a community which is just getting together, there can be some negativity because we haven't got used to each other yet. In this monastery, it's a big monastery, Many of us have been together for years, you know everything about each other, you know all the idiosyncrasies, and so it's just you know, Ajahn Brahm being Ajahn Brahm. It's happy being happy, Brahmali doing his thing. You know, so, you know, when you understand people, you don't really get upset about them. And it's just, you know, get used to them. You get used to their idiosyncrasies so they don't irritate you anymore. And of course, in a community which is new, they've still got to learn how to deal with those uh, idiosyncrasies so they can actually have some peace and some some harmony there. You know, but you were uh, telling people that, look, as soon as you want things and start to control things, that that's where the problem begins and it just grows and grows and grows and grows. Now, you can't end suffering by making more suffering. 
So by making peace, by being kind, by giving people benefit of the doubts, by giving yourself the benefit of the doubt, by being kind to yourself, by pacifying things, by calming things, by stilling things, that becomes the path. And that becomes your goal. And that becomes, you know, what you are uh, aspiring for. Aspire for the end of all aspirations. So the goal is no goals. The effort to stop making effort. You know, that's not Zen, that's basic Theravada. And then you do get peaceful. And it's not only you get peaceful and still. You know, you know that what I keep on saying, this wonderful thing that through stillness things start to, to disappear, they start to vanish, they, this word viraga. I was just reflecting today that, you know, on the way back from the airport, that almost like there's a pair with upadana and viraga. Now, the upadana, in the sense of the fuel, you know, which the fuel which creates a stronger uh, existence for you. It just makes the body and the past and the future really solid. And all the thoughts, it makes them real, as if you can almost touch them. And they're actually so solid they can hurt you and, and they can uh, cause problems for you. But when things fade away through viraga, it's like the opposite. You're, the fuel is stopped, and so they tend to lose their solidity. They become more ephemeral, so they just can't hurt you. It's just like when I was a kid, it was the difference between having a snowball full of ice and a snowball just as snow. One was hard and hurts and stings. The other one was just so soft, it could you know, just fun to get hit by it. You know, it's just snow, soft and fluffy. But you can see just when the hardness starts to vanish, when the hardness of the past starts to experience viraga, it starts to fade. When the harshness or the concerns and worry of the future start to fade, then it's not so much of a problem anymore. When all those thoughts and fantasies and dreams, you know, the thinking in the mind, when that starts to get solid, that's a huge problem, which is one of the reasons why people can worry about these things. The more you fuel them, the more solid they become. It's as if their very existence, uh, their very existence and their, their strength and their power depends upon just how seriously you take them, how much fuel you give them, how much upadana you feed in them. You understand why you no know, upadana pacha your no bhava. No, from that fuel, it makes these things exist. It makes a past exist. You know, sometimes you keep on telling this ordinary people, what does it matter who said what to who, where you came from, what happened? Please, it's a past, let it go. Why is it people can't do that? Because they fuel that past. And it's so strong, it's just like this this big, huge being who's eaten so much, you know, like Ajahn Brahm, who's fat. <laughs> Really solid, because <laughs> you fed it a lot, and then sometimes that you starve that past of concern. That's just a past. Who cares about it? Because you don't feed it, you cut off the upadana. It starts to fade and vanish. It becomes, you know, this really thin being, like say upasamo. You know, sometimes you just you don't know how he can keep his robes on. If there's anything underneath it. <laughs>
But you know what I mean here. You can see things fading and disappearing away, just like become specters, like ghosts. You can see through them also because they're not solid anymore. And this is actually what happens with Viraga. It's brilliant, the stillness from Samadhi. You see things as they truly are, and Viraga happens. The things, they don't get so solid. So all this anger and guilt about the past, it's just not solid anymore. It just, if it hits you, it just almost like passes right through it, like passing through a mist, rather than passing through a, a wall of water. It's not solid, it's fading, it's just disappearing. And the future, just disappearing, all these thoughts, is as if they are just slowly disappearing and vanishing, little by little, little by little, until they become so light there's hardly anything there, which means that they don't affect you anymore. And that's actually what happens when you, you cut off the fuel and instead you, know, you allow these things to fade. It's always like that idea of upadana viraga, just being polar opposites. And that's also, again, just feeding the body every time you're concerned about it. And I just, my body aches and it gets sick. I don't know what was going on over in New South Wales, but as soon as I landed, I started clogging up. And there's some sort of allergy, there's some sort of new pollen over there, which I was not used to. So, Nito, don't go to Santi this time of the year or anyone else with, with blocked noses. And, you know, sometimes that you go to those places and all these things block up and, and things get really solid, but it doesn't matter. You know, you just, okay, forget about that. I'm just going to make peace. I can't breathe through my nose. Who cares? I'm just going to really f allow my body to fade away. And it does. It gets light. It gets, like, buoyant and, like, fluffy. And it's hardly there anymore. So, you know, just allowing the body to wiraga, to fade away. And you know, that happens in meditation. I'm sure that most of you have experienced that, if not all of you. You're sitting down meditating and the body feels light. It's like it's hardly there anymore. It's not this heavy block of blob, you know, which is really weighty and solid. You know, it gets to the point where, you know, it's almost you could put your finger through it and uh, it wouldn't resist. It's just fading away. It's becoming light, you know, just like gossamer-like. And of course then it disappears. And this is actually what happens. And it's so wonderful to let an old body just disappear, which is all getting sick, aching and stuff, because I push it around too much. Or rather other people push it around. And I, and I just let it happen. <laughs> but anyway, you can see that it becomes not solid. And that's the same with things like the mind or the jitter as well. Why does it come solid? The whole idea of this is allowing everything to fade away, to disappear. So it's, it becomes solid because of upadana. You're feeding with fuel. And the fuel of the sense of mind is a lot of experiences, number one, and a lot of sort of identification with what other people think of you, what they say about you. That gives a solid sense of self, you know, called reputation. What have you achieved during this rain's retreat? And if you do think like that, your sense of self is going to get more and more solid. You know, your upadana, you're feeding it the wrong stuff, and it gets more solid. The atta becomes more um, thick and heavy, 
just like you feed the body gets thick and heavy. But when instead you keep the body still, you just let it go and just make peace with it. Just don't really worry about it too much. Because you're not upadana it, you're not feeding it, you're not giving it fuel. I don't mean like physical fuel, I mean this fuel of interest, concern, you know, the upadana. When you stop that, you know, the, even the mind starts to, the sense of who you are tends to vanish and fade. It's really weird just, you know, just going away for two or three days. It's just like you were another monk for three days. You come here and now you're an Albert monk. You go to Singapore, you're a Singapore monk. And just, I feel like a chameleon. They're just changing to the different situations because a different character is needed in each of those situations. And of course, in a couple of weeks' time, I change again into my hermit. But which one is really me? None of them are. Because you can fade away, you can adapt to whichever situation you happen to be in or whatever role you have. So when you don't have a solid self, it's as if you can mould into whatever you really want it to be, just as like wet clay. But when it's hard clay, baked, you know, through upadana, you can't mould it into anything which is why you get stuck and you, know, you can't sort of adapt and do different things and enjoy being sort of pliable. I like the idea of being pliable because it means you, know, you just can bend to whatever situation comes at you. And being a monk or a nun in the West, just you really have to bend a lot because you don't know what job or what situation you'll be in next. It's much more predictable being a monk or a nun in an Asian country because everybody knows what you do. It's just all set out for you, what monks do in Sri Lanka, what they do in, in Thailand, and it's just easy, so you don't need to adapt. But when you come to the West, you've got to do amazing, strange things which you've never done before, which no monks in Thailand would do. But you can adapt to that because you haven't got a solid sense of self. It's like wet clay, you can bend it, mould it, change it. And that's a very wonderful thing to have. But of course, you know, by not feeling it at all, it means that it does fade away. Your sense of atta becomes more and more thin and weak, as if there's nothing there. And how do you actually do that? Again, I already mentioned, number one, don't worry about reputations, who you are or what other people say about you. Don't worry about attainments because there's attainments probably most, more than anything else create the solid sense of self. You know, because I remember I was supposed to be a graduate from Cambridge. That great attainment can give you a very solid sense of self and that solid sense of self is actually what you know, we'd say is the ego or the sense of the very strong sense of atta, who you think you are. I'm a monk, I'm a teacher, I'm an abba, I'm this, I'm that. I've attained this, I've attained that. That's why, you know, the Buddha said, you must not tell you know, lay people about that, even don't tell other monks about that, because it just strengthens the atta. It doesn't weaken it. You're going in the wrong direction. Hey, look at me. I've got first jhanas. Nah, I had that years ago. 
I see people doing that. I remember first year here in Perth, I went <coughs> to the Theosophical Society looking for a book. And it's actually the book which I gave to Ajahn Bamalia a few days ago, the Jaina Sutras. And I, the only place they had uh, any sort of uh, Eastern book on Eastern religions was in the Theosophical Society, which was just uh, uh, by Hyde Park in North Perth. And I went there and I was looking for it and I was overhearing the <coughs> bookshop manager with her friend and they were discussing who was an arahat in the Theosophical Society. Do you know that she's an arahat now? No, she can't be. Oh, yes, she is. Uh, it was like women gossiping in the sort of the in the uh, hairdressers. <laughs> but they were gossiping about the most ridiculous things. And it was very much into who's going to be get the next attainment. And it was just ridiculous seeing that. But because it was from another sort of group, you know, it sort of really emphasized that when that happens in you know, this monastery or similar monasteries, you really are missing the point. We're not trying to make a stronger sense of self. Know, through thinking of what we've achieved and our attainments. Nor we can also make a very strong sense of self, you know, by uh, our failures as well, which is uh, you know, the reverse but still as solidifying as attainments. I'm hopeless, I'm terrible, I can't meditate, I'm stupid, I'm an idiot, whatever it is, I'm sick, I'm old, even negative things can create a very solid sense of self. So whenever there are causes achievements or failures, when there's failures there's achievements and both of them create this sense of atta. And instead, you know, through the stillness, letting things be, just making peace with everything. Yeah, well, I'm hopeless. You make peace with that. Which means it doesn't lead into creating a solid sense of self. It's not upadana anymore. It's not the fuel which, which feeds and solidifies things. You know, I, oh, I just had such a hopeless retreat, this uh, retreat. How long ago? Oh, just over a month has gone past. I've got no, actually I've gone backwards. And I was much better when I was a lay person. My meditation here is hopeless. You know, down in Dhammasar, we don't get any time to meditate. I'm just really going crazy. Whatever it is, if you think like that, you're creating this incredible, powerful, solid self, which is the, po the problem, is upadana. And when instead you just have stillness, you make peace with what you have to do. Yeah, you have to work on stupas, or you have to just um, go and write something for somebody. Yeah, just make peace with it. Because you're making peace with it, you're not fighting it, you're being kind to it. Because you're not creating this upadana, there's a sense of stilling and calming, which means the problems get very weak. They're not as solid as they used to be, so it's very easy just to deal with them. They're not like this big elephant. They're just like a fluffy butterfly. In other words, it's just small because it's not solid and tough, and it's not a problem anymore. And once it becomes thin like that and weak, you know, it's not just a problem, but you realize you're going in the correct direction. You, know, you find that when you don't concern yourself about attainments, so just the mind starts to vanish. It gets the sense of self. It's just hardly there anymore. 
you look and you just, whatever you think you are, you just see straight through it. It's not solid anymore. And when that starts to happen, there's this great sense of freedom. Remember what I've <coughs> always been saying, the reason why you, know, you have trouble is because you, know, you think there's somebody there who's going to experience trouble, someone who's responsible for things, someone to pin the blame on. When you realize there's no one there, I did talk a lot about the driverless bus in Santee. When there's no bus driver there, you're, you're so wonderful. No bus driver. The bus driver has vanished. He's just disappeared. He was sorry at the beginning of the journey. You can actually touch him and pat him on the shoulders. You can give her a present. But now she's got so thin that he's not there anymore. The stillness has allowed it to fade away until it's disappeared, it's new odoured. And that idea of allowing things to fade away is what the path is. Not cultivating upadana, more fuel for the cycle, but cultivating the opposite, the stillness which allows things to fade. And you know now you're going in the correct direction. If it's for attainment, we're not quite sure. What is streaming anyway? What is our... Look, some of the people you say, I'm an arahat, I'm an anagami, I'm this and I'm that, and sometimes you look at them, they can't be. Because this is not the point. The point is how, how much have they faded away? How much have they disappeared? How much are they just not there? And still, you know, when I give talks without planning, all these associations come up. And as I was saying that, I remember just one of my favorite monks, Ajahn Tate. And going to see him in Hingmak Peng in the north of north of the northeast of Thailand. And just going into this huge it was called a mandapa, this like palatial building the King of Thailand had built for him. And in this really big room where he gave audience to people. And he was just it's a very solid, impressive building. But then there was this little old monk sitting in the corner. And it was true that my perception was there was, there was no one there. Sometimes you'd look around, you wouldn't see him. He did not dominate the building. The building just swallowed him until he just almost vanished. It was like they had to look to try and find him. And that's somebody who was fading away. Still had a solid body, still a few more years to live but just this little old man sitting in a chair watching the Mekong River flow by. And there was not a solid presence there at all. You know, he was faded. I love that sort of experience because that really shows you what the path is all about. Now there you can find the goal, the goal of fading away. So you fade away. So instead of saying people to a good night, may you have a good night, so this evening may you please fade away. <laughs> so on your birthday, may you fade twice as much as any other day. I wish people happy fading. So that way you're not asking people to get something more. May you have good meditation, no. May everything disappear. Changing the attitude like that, you realize then people don't become solid. And, you know, as 
sort of a monk in a monastery, when you start to vanish, you, even your friends in the holy life can hardly see you. You just drift into the the lunchtime. They see you sitting there. You hardly say a word. You drift out afterwards. And did they come today? You hardly say a word. And you're just so quiet, so not there that you are fading. The ones who come and sit there, hey, good morning, I'm here today. Look at me, talk to me. They're those ones who are more solid. So it's great to be able... <laughs> It's great to be able to fade and disappear. It's a tough thing to do sometimes because it goes against the sense of self. We always want to be, and we're afraid of disappearing. But look, it's much more fun just, you know, when the body disappears and fades away. It's just so much peace and freedom. You don't have to worry about the aches and the pains anymore. I'm having sat in an aircraft for five and a half hours today and a really crowded sat next to some young kids who were fly-in-fly-out workers. I said that, actually, I really shouldn't sort of criticize fly-in-fly-out workers because that's what I was, a fly-in-fly-out monk to Santi Monastery. Fly in, two days later, fly back. <laughs> so that sometimes you can criticize them. But it's just very uncomfortable sitting on an aircraft like that for, for a long time and just very cramped seats. And so... But it's nice to be able to just let the body vanish. It's nice to have a mind which you can, yeah, you've got so much stuff to do and just give you talks and response, but just let the whole thing vanish and fade away. It's just so much freedom. So the more things fade, the happier you become. Everything just disappears. And there you find freedom. So don't be afraid of fading. Yeah, you may sort of be a bit um, uncomfortable at first with the idea, because we all want things which are solid. So we think that we can rely upon them, we can depend upon them, gives us a sense of security. But no, my security is having nothing. My security is knowing that at any time I can just let my body go, and so it doesn't matter how much it hurts or how old it is, how weak or how tired it is. If you really want to, bye-bye, body. And you can be free of the damn thing. And I say, my thoughts, yeah, you can think if you need to, but if you really need to not think, you just say, bye-bye thoughts, and you watch them all fade away. And that's what it's like. Yeah, they're there, and they get thinner and weaker until they just vanish, they're gone. And just see your mind vanish and go to... You don't cherish anything. Isn't it great you have no mind left? Which means no problems, no worries, no happiness to seek, no suffering to get rid of. Totally beyond happiness and suffering. When there's a mind, there'll always be happiness and suffering. You can't just have a mind with just happiness. This is nature. It's nature. It changes. Which means... You get happiness and you get suffering. And look, the nature of suffering is just a little bit less happiness. I remember this article written by this long time ago. He was one of these uh, gourmets. You know, he would eat at the very best restaurants. And he was so attached to his food. If he had to go down to a three-star restaurant instead of his normal four or five stars. It was just, that was such a suffering for the guy. 
And for us, if we went to a three-star restaurant, wow, it'd be amazing, the food. You know, <laughs> talking about being on aircraft. After seven years of being a monk in northeast Thailand, I went to visit my mother in London. And the cheapest, the very cheapest flight I could get was on Philippine Airlines. And there's, well, how many years ago was that? 32 years ago or something. Um, and that was really a bucket airline at the time. You know, it was very lucky it didn't sort of crash somewhere or something. But when I went on board, I couldn't believe just how, how luxurious it was. I mean, you actually got fed, you know, and it wasn't sticky rice and frog. It was actually something you could eat. And you even got ice cream. Ice cream. I never seen ice cream for years. <laughs> and that was, and the seats, you know, the seats you could actually sit down on them. They were, they were flat, not lumpy like the concrete in what Nana Chat. And it was upholstered. And it was just so luxurious that I couldn't understand just how people complain about flying in economy in a sort of a junk airline. But all it was was because compared to where I'd come from, you know, the forests of Thailand at that time, what you used to eat and how you used to live, that it was just comparison. That was just really sort of luxury. And it's the same with, for us, maybe three-star restaurant will be luxury, but for the, someone who likes five-star food, that's so much suffering. So remember, even if you have lots of happiness, if the happiness is slightly less today, that's called dukkha. That's why where there's a mind, there always has to be dukkha and sukha. Have both. That's why it's great when the mind vanishes. Having a body, you're always going to have suffering and happiness too. The reason people like having bodies is so they can experience their happiness. And they just enjoy the, you know, the pain of it so they can have some happiness tomorrow. And it's a deal they make. Same as the deal you make with having a mind. There's a great joy and happiness. So you think, okay, I can take the suffering. But there is another option, just watching this thing called the mind vanish. So the mind objects are just hardly there. That's why that when you go to these like jhanas and especially the arupa states, now that's what the arupas are. The mind is fading away. It's becoming hardly anything there. Which is why you, know, you have these amazing words like nothing. The sphere of nothingness. What the heck can that mean? That means this mind is just almost gone. And neither perception nor non-perception just hardly can't describe anything. Is there something there or is there not something there? It's both. So you can see that something is fading away here. The consciousness and its mind and its mind consciousness and the mind objects. And that's why it's highest bliss when things fade. There's nothing left, no one there. No mind, no body, no thoughts, no enlightenment, nothing. Just gone, vanished. That's why I love the word of Viraga. Disappearing, fading away. 
And that's what you should aim for, for things fading. Even for things like metta fading away, jhanas fading, mindfulness fading, everything, even the good qualities. As the Buddha said in the simile of the raft, you know, you should abandon sort of the, the, even the good things, let alone the unwholesome stuff. So to be able to let everything vanish, even the things which you cherish, like metta, that's just another movement of the mind. Until everything becomes so still and everything vanishes. That's our path. And you understand it's a totally complete path. It includes things like um, sila and you know, locking all these stuff which makes you make break rules vanish all the cravings and the thoughts and worries about the past and plans for the future and trying to control things, seeing all that vanish, seeing your body vanish, seeing all the aches and pains vanish when the body goes, seeing all the, sort of the thoughts vanish, the mind vanish, everything vanish. It fades away. Why? Because you're stopping the upadana. You're stopping the fuel which keeps it solid. And you do that by becoming still making peace, being kind, being gentle. And then things just disappear, vanish. That's the path of freedom. So that's time now for the talk to vanish and I'm going to fade away now.